Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 36, The Scott Cast, Part 2. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to James, Christopher, and Carolyn for signing up already. Now, before I get going, listener Gina pointed out that I said Britain in the last episode when I should have said Great Britain. Busted. Fair and square. However, if you hear me saying Britain, I'm probably just shortening Great Britain to keep this conversational tone that we have going on here. I mean, let's be honest here. As soon as you heard your first bleeped out word, you probably realized what you're getting into, right? I'm pretty much just chatting with you about stories from history like you were a friend, but the difference here being that, unlike my friends, you're actually f***ing listening. Consequently, I tend to just say Britain when I'm referring to the Isle of Britannia, just like I say America rather than saying the United States of America. But the point is a fair one. So for general life, there's a difference between Britain and Great Britain. But for this f***ing podcast, just assume I'm being lazy and shortening Great Britain to Britain. Okay, with that out of the way, let's start our talk in the 4th millennium BC. Around about this time, we start to see a rise in tombs, barrows, and other enclosures that are related to death. So what do we know about these sites? Well, very little. But that's not too surprising, really. So before we get into this whole archaeology thing, which is pretty much what this entire podcast is going to be on, let's put you in the right mindset. Imagine being an alien visiting Earth, and all you had to go on are the broken remnants of a house that was knocked down. If you could figure out what the living room looked like, what would you make of the area where the television once stood? I mean, you can just figure out the layout of the room. You don't see the couch, you don't see the table, you don't see where the TV was or where the surround system set was set up or anything like that. You can just see where everything was. You can figure out that the couch was probably for sitting, you can probably figure out where the table was, and that was probably for keeping things, you know, off the ground. Well, what about the TV? That depression right there, where the TV was. What was that for? What sat there? I mean, the room seems designed to venerate it. Everything was focused at this object. Was it a spiritual object? Or maybe this was a dining hall, and that's where the ancient cooking device resided. What was that thing for? What could have possibly been so important to command such dominance in the room? I mean, that's pretty much what we're dealing with here when we talk about archaeology. We're just trying to find a way to put objects or just the shadows of objects into context. It's just incredibly hard stuff. I mean, trying to imagine what a site might have looked like undamaged and then put the artifacts and the rooms into context? How do you even start? Well, let's do another one. Imagine trying to figure out the nature of Catholic beliefs and rituals just by examining the footprint of your local church and a few random, partially destroyed items from the trash bin. You're not going to see any of the walls or anything, just the footprint. Just what's on the ground. And let's say you got really lucky in the trash bin, and you found a partially broken wine bottle and a cross that appears to be having a mostly naked man nailed to it, but he's missing an arm, you know, because it's broken. Well, what do you think those people believed? What did their religion look like? I mean, that man has been nailed to a cross. This is a death cult? What's going on here? 
This is often what we're dealing with when we look at ancient sites. It's incredibly difficult to find hard facts regarding who the people were and what their lives looked like. And it gets even more difficult when we're talking about religion. But when we're looking at all these sites, we can make a few guesses, so we're going to give it our best shot in this episode. So for example, many of the sites in Scotland seem to be preoccupied with death. We've got tombs, barrows, and the like. Sounds pretty grim to me. Take Mace Howe, for example. You can find it on Orkney. You can find nearly everything great on Orkney. It's a massive ancient burial mound that even caught the imagination and stoked the fears of the Vikings who were later in the area and might have robbed the tomb. According to the legend, just staying the night caused some of the Vikings to go completely stark raving mad. And the area continued to hold a sort of creepy, haunted reputation. For example, in 1911, apparently a farmer was digging around the mound when he was stopped by an old, gray, tattered man who warned him if he continued digging, even just one more shovelful, that first six of his cattle would die. And then if he persisted, six of his family members would follow the cattle to their graves as well. And then he ended his dire curse with, Good day, fellow. Which I think was rather polite of him. It's nice when ghosts are polite when they're giving you a dire curse. So anyway, we don't know much about these early people, but we can assume that they had tougher nerves than those Vikings who got the heebie-jeebies when looking at the mound, but we really just don't know much. However, when looking at the totality of it, the preoccupation with monuments of death, the prevalence of well-preserved ancient sites, I didn't mention this earlier, but Scotland has a bunch of very well-preserved ancient sites, which is rather unusual. And also, you've got a level of, for lack of a better term, ghost stories that persist in the area too. So it does suggest that maybe there are remnants of an ancient culture that still remain. That throughout the invasions and cultural shifts that have happened throughout the millennia that followed, the reverence and respect, or maybe the fear, for the dead that led to these great monuments might still remain in Orkney in some way. But like I said, we're basically looking at our living room and trying to work out the importance of the area where the TV once stood without any manual, a TV guide, or other sort of written record to show us how it was used. And of course, the TV isn't even there. So all we can do is try and put it into context as best as we can, but it involves a lot of guesswork, so who knows. Anyway, so around this point, we're starting to see a number of monuments that are related to death. And actually... Pretty soon, we're going to be seeing standing stones and stone circles that we'll get into. And while it's tempting to postulate on what these stones mean, just like many people love to make guesses at the purpose of Stonehenge, ultimately, we'll probably never know. Like much of this period, many of the monuments are a mystery, like the people who built them. And to begin with, these mystery people were hunter-gatherer fishers, certainly. But they were also becoming something more we start to sense a distinct cultural identity that was being formed and a belief structure. Unfortunately, it's still very difficult for us to get a window into that structure. But we can tease out a few facts of what their world might have looked like. And actually, to talk about that, let's chat about a few more archaeological digs. So around the same time that we've got these barrows and whatnot being built, we also have an enormous building getting erected at Balbridi at Aberdeenshire. And this was between 3900 and 3700 BC, for those of you keeping score. The building was about 85 feet long and 43 feet wide. And based upon the depth of the post holes, we think that the roof was more than 30 feet high. So we're talking about more than 3600 square feet just on the ground floor. And given its height, it could have easily had another level on it. It's pretty big, right? 
Every time I hear someone talking about cave dwellers in prehistoric Britain, I think it's science like this. Now, given the scale of this building, it probably has a thinking about Anglo-Saxon England. At least that's what it does to me. It's large, it's wooden, it's rectangular. You could almost imagine Hengist and Horsa demanding that something like this be built, or maybe Alfred. But this was well over 4,000 years before the rise of Anglo-Saxon Britain. So what was it? Well, again, it's hard to say. The scale makes one think that it was either political or religious in intent. But that could just be modern cultural bias, since many of the enormous sites we look at right now tend to be dedicated either to the religious class or the political class. Now granted, the stuff we're building right now tends to be dedicated to the financial class, but going back in history until the very recent history, it tends to be either religious or political. You don't often find, for example, a crofter with a gigantic building. So it's kind of strange, right? But I think I have an idea of what it might be, and that actually is tied into who I think might have built it. You might think that who built it has an obvious answer, since Britons from the south were moving farther and farther north into Scotland as things warmed up. So clearly, it's the relocated people from the south, right? Well, maybe, but I doubt it. If the people who moved up into Scotland built it, we'd see stepping stones. We'd see increasingly larger buildings over time, right? For example, my dad and I at one point built a shed in his backyard. And after building that, we didn't turn around and say, all right, we're done with that, now let's build a mansion. You don't do that. Maybe you go and, I don't know, build a treehouse or a garage or something. You, you move up. You don't go and say, okay, let's do the biggest thing ever now. So what we're talking about here is an extreme leap because they were basically just building small houses and then all of a sudden you have this gigantic thing. And even more interesting is the fact that in the post holes that we found, we found grain. And those grains aren't native to Scotland. They're from Europe. And the building itself looks remarkably like buildings that had been erected on the continent about a thousand years before the Balbrides structure was put up. And, of course, we're also seeing the spread of agricultural technology at roughly around this same period as well. And based on some pretty amazing genetic studies, we're able to roughly trace the spread of agriculture, and this actually fits in pretty well with that spread. So who built it? Well, probably settlers from overseas. And they probably decided to build it there because it was very fertile. They were right on the River Dee. It was a very fertile stretch of land. So my guess is that the building was at least partially agricultural in nature. The upper level could have easily been used to store grain and hopefully keep it from vermin, and the lower area might have been used for a common area for eating, sleeping, working, or whatever. And actually, this building wasn't the only one. There were others, one at Kleish and one at Kelso. And looking at the map, you'll notice that all three of those were on the eastern side of Scotland, near navigable rivers, and occupy fertile land. It sounds like agricultural settlers, doesn't it? Now, as for why they decided to move into Scotland, who knows? I mean, we're moving into the climatic optimum, so it's pretty nice in Scotland at the moment, so that could be a reason. But there might have been conflicts that led to refugees. It might have been wanderlust. It could have been anything. Who knows? And it's entirely possible that trade routes were being established at around this period. We like to imagine early man living in a sort of isolation, but that's probably not the case. So maybe these were trade centers. 
After all, they were on navigable rivers. Or maybe they moved into the area because of trade contact. Or maybe they were built by indigenous people, and those indigenous people acquired the know-how to build those buildings through their trade contacts. See how many possibilities there are here? It could be anything. But the point is that we've got agriculture, and we've got big buildings, so things are moving forward. I mean, this is a period of great change for Scotland. And while the northern and western parts of Scotland were still rather resistant to agriculture, progress could not be denied. Agriculture was coming, and as many have argued, with the spread of agriculture come advancements in a variety of areas of life. It seems that agriculture is a major cornerstone to human cultural development. By making food production easier, it allowed us to have more time for other pursuits. But on the flip side, the additional time and increase in resources also seems to lead to class stratification in many cases, as well as a number of other downsides such as diseases, which we'll get into soon. Anyway, like I said, I think last episode, what with the glaciers scraping the north of Scotland and whatnot, agriculture wasn't as easy in the north as it was farther south. And consequently, it seems that some of Scotland was slow to adapt to new technologies and to agriculture. And some tribes that adopted new farming techniques might have later dropped them to return to their hunting bands. But overall, the rise in agriculture could not be denied, nor could any of the cultural changes that came with it. And many of the domestic farm animals and cultivated plants we still use today found their beginnings during this period. This was a revolution, and not even the rugged hunters of the highlands could resist it. But with progress comes difficulties. For example, disease. In general, unless you're vegan, you don't think twice about drinking milk or eating farm animals in today's society. I mean, even if you're thinking about it, you're not thinking about the possibility that it could kill you. And that's largely because, one, it's mostly safe and well-regulated, and two, anything piggybacking on the food is going to be stuff that we probably already have antibodies to defend ourselves against. We've been eating this stuff for thousands of years, and so we built up a sort of immunity. But imagine being one of these prehistoric Scots. Due to the spread of agriculture and animal husbandry, there was a rise in all manner of diseases. Tuberculosis, smallpox, measles, whooping cough, which my mother had when she was nine months pregnant with me, sorry mom, influenza, the list goes on and on. And all of them come from this rise in agriculture. So these people were getting sick on a scale that never happened before, and they probably had no idea why it was happening. So could that lead to small levels of migration as well? Maybe. We really don't know why those buildings were being built, or specifically who built them. But they're a fun mystery, and mystery is all part of the story of prehistoric Scotland, right? And actually, the disease aspect of agriculture makes me think back to those barrows, tombs, and whatnot that we talked about earlier. I mean, granted, those sites were on the west, and the timber lodges that we were talking about was on the east. But the agricultural change wasn't isolated, so the people of the West would have been part of these gargantuan changes as well. So with that in mind, think of all the buildings related to death, and the ghost stories that persist, and the high level of preservation on these ancient sites that have a material connection with death. And keep in mind that with that sudden burst of disease, there was going to be associated mortality. And it would have all happened pretty much at the same time as agriculture rolling in and people getting extra time to do things. So could all of this have a connection to this morbid cultural artifact that we seem to see a shadow of? 
Maybe. It's an interesting thought. Now, all of this agriculture wasn't uniform, of course, right? And like I said, some tribes even avoided it altogether. But something interesting is how it was dealt with in southern Scotland. What would happen is they would burn a patch of forest and then plant seeds in the ashes and then grow crops for a couple years before moving on to another area and burning that section down. The advantage of this was that they didn't have to worry about fertilizing the field or developing any sort of crop rotation, which they wouldn't have had any knowledge of how to do. They could just move on, and once the forest reclaimed the area in 10 or so years, they could come back with matches and start the whole process over again. But given the common prejudice of assuming that ancient man was living at one with nature, imagining these early tribes slashing and burning their way through the forests of Scotland is kind of a jarring thought. I suppose humans have just always been tough on nature. Additionally, with the rise of agriculture came a much greater focus of attention upon boundaries and ownership. We start to see fields demarcated by dikes, probably both to indicate ownership as well as to keep domestic animals from wandering off. Some of these dikes might have also been used to indicate boundaries between different tribes, actually. I mean, boundaries were very, very important. And here's an interesting cultural side note that happened in the very north of Scotland and in the Upper Islands. There was this odd custom where they would take young boys of a certain age around to the boundary stones following the harvest. And at each stone, they would give one of the boys a, quote, sound thrashing, end quote, so that he'd remember where the boundaries stood. Then they'd go to the next stone and do the same with a different boy. Every single harvest they would do this. It was called the Riding of the Hagri, and it seems to have continued actually until the 1800s before finally stopping. So was this something that found its origins in those early days when the dikes were first being constructed? Who knows? But the early attention to boundaries, and then that same preoccupation with boundaries thousands of years later, is pretty interesting, isn't it? So with the rise of agriculture, like I mentioned, came an increase in free time, or at least an increase in available resources to be spent on things other than food acquisition. And round about this same time, we're finding our first evidence of cremation and similar religious sites. For example, at Pitlassie, which isn't terribly far from Balbride, we've found an area that has been cleared away in roughly a circle, and a funeral pyre was built in the middle. And then we have another site from around the same time, and it's a religious site at Cairn Papel Hill with uh, deposited axes and pottery, and it pretty clearly seems to be of a religious nature. Karen Papel, by the way, probably means something like priest's rock or monk's rock when translated. And interestingly, as far as we can tell, the hearths that were built at this site, because there were hearths, only burned oak and hazelwood. My members might recall the importance of those materials in the Druid episode. Actually, let's keep on talking about Karen Papel. So later in history, 24 wooden posts were placed in a circle there. And then a ditch was dug with the dirt being thrown up inside, almost like a screen. And all of a sudden, now we've got ourselves a henge. And actually, by 3300 BC, that's when we're seeing henges in Scotland, which is earlier than we're finding henges anywhere in the south. And again, this seems to be the result of the increased time and resources that were available to non-food production activities. Now, I've done a lot of guesswork with regard to some of these dig sites, and I'm going to do a lot more guesswork as we go forward in this episode. But what I don't want to do is get too much into the henges, because we really just don't know too much. 
Like I said, it feels like I'm trying to guess at the belief structure of the Catholic faith by just looking at a broken crucifix and a shard of a wine bottle and maybe the footprint of a church. Religion is just too intricate to effectively make guesses at, in my opinion. But here's what we do know. First, the hinges aren't found anywhere else in Europe at the same time. It looks like they started in Orkney. Additionally, they required a huge amount of effort. This was no minor undertaking. There weren't cranes and bulldozers back then. You're shocked, right? All of this was done by hand. So it was a massive project. Almost as massive as someone telling the entire story of Britain. So they must have been important. You don't put that sort of work into something that doesn't really matter. But as for what they meant and how they were used, if someone tells you they have the truth of it, they're lying to you. Nobody knows. That information has just been lost to time, and I'd rather avoid making guesses about it. But that's beside the point anyways, because for where we are right now, it's just a spot where offerings were made and specific wood was being burned. And actually, just like the ancient people suddenly had time for religion and whatnot, they also had time for pottery. Now this might have been due to, like I said, they had extra time, but it also might have been due to the fact that they were less mobile now, and it made more sense to have pottery. I mean, why would a mobile society want to take the time to make and transport easily breakable pottery? So along with these other changes, we've also got pots and stuff showing up. So anyway, Scotland was joining the agricultural revolution, and by and large, it was in with both feet. But it's hard to get a firm grasp on who these people were, and frankly, they're still kind of an otherworldly group of people. I mean, we have farmers with a possible preoccupation with death, but that doesn't really synthesize it too well into, you know, who someone is and what a society is like. Well, to fill in the gaps, sometimes archaeologists and paleoanthropologists look at other societies or the same society at a different time and try and get an idea of what the people might have been like through comparison. So why don't we give that a shot? So let's look at Gaelic, since I'm a language nerd. Gaelic has a tremendous amount of language that revolves around agriculture. In fact, it offers much more precision in description, especially descriptions that would be useful for farmers, than English does. For example, English doesn't have a word for land plowed for a second crop. Gaelic does, though. Could this be a remnant of the agricultural society that was born in Scotland at around this time? Maybe. Or it might just be simply tied to the Celts and their languages, since Celtic languages were often much more concerned with things that would matter to agricultural societies than English is. For example, Celtic languages often have more descriptors, especially of colors, than English. And that would be very useful for describing when to harvest, how healthy a particular animal is, how a crop's doing, and whatnot. So maybe it was just the Celts. Or maybe the Celts were incorporating some of the words from the natives. After all, most of the names for the islands of the Hebrides are pre-Celtic, so it wouldn't be the first time that something like that happened. But anyways, we don't really know, and it's just a thought. Another place we can look to try and get a better understanding of these people is within the potential cultural similarities between the ancient people and the Scots of the 19th and 20th centuries. Take a look at the crofters of Scotland, for example. Crofter might not be a term that you're used to. Basically, crofters are small-scale farmers. Their produce is diverse and designed to be worked by the family and also sustain that same family. Often, they supplement their produce with seafood and found other ways to add income to their family through weaving and knitting and crafting and the like. 
So basically, a crofter is what your average hippie in Portland, Oregon dreams of being. They have completely sustainable living. And actually, here's how down-to-earth these people were. Until the Second World War, which was when cheap tractors became available, nearly everything on a crofter's farm was managed by hand. I'm talking about hoes, foot plows, shovels, rakes, etc. Completely sustainable living. And actually, if society came crashing down around our ears, I would think that the crofters would be way better off than, say, historians and lawyers. But anyway, here's why I'm talking about this, other than to give my Portland listeners a serious case of envy. It's because the black houses, that's what crofter houses used to be called until the early 1900s, were shockingly similar to farmsteads that we found and dated in the 4th millennium BC. I'll say that again, just to make sure it hits home. The sustainable farmsteads that we used until very recently in history, in many ways look like the farmsteads that were used in the period of prehistory that we've been talking about today. These early people weren't backwards and living in caves, despite what some people say. And those same people who say that tend to be the same ones who put way too much of an emphasis upon Rome. They were sophisticated. They were probably involved in trade. They were farmers. And the system of farming that they had was so effective that by and large, it didn't change a tremendous amount. I mean, obviously there are gonna be changes, but it wasn't like it went through a massive revolution. And actually, while I'm drawing parallels, why don't we talk about black pudding? Do you know what black pudding is? Some people call it blood sausage, but you know, whatever. Is it so difficult to imagine that black pudding got its start in these early days of agriculture? You have a long winter, you're low on food, and you've got little livestock, but you're afraid to slaughter one to feed your family because livestock is so precious. But you can always draw some blood. I mean, it's possible, and other ancient cultures have done it. But of course, we can't know for sure if that's where it got started. It very easily could have started at 500 BC or something. But maybe your grandfather was taking part in a very ancient tradition when he was frying up black pudding for Sunday breakfast. The point here is that once agriculture arrived, it caused a tremendous amount of change in the lives of those early inhabitants of Scotland. But now we're leaving the rise of agriculture in Scotland. And we're getting into the real fun part of the BC period of Scottish history. Scara Bray. Now this site was from right at the end of the 4th millennium BC and the early part of the 3rd millennium BC. And it was also on the Orkney coast. Remember, everything fun is on the islands. Anyway, Scara Bray is amazing. It's basically British Pompeii, and it irks me to no end that I've actually never been there. So here's basically what happened here. In the mid-19th century, this town started to appear on Orkney. How awesome is that? It just kind of started to appear. It's like something out of H.P. Lovecraft. So what we found so far are eight houses. And these aren't like, you know, the standard footprint where you're looking around and going, well, I think there might have been a wall there. No, these actually still had walls, and they even had stone furniture. And you can clearly make out the shape of the town. I mean, we've got walls walls and they're still standing at roof level we've got furniture i mean how how awesome is this i mean really scarabray is pretty much the greatest thing to have happened to british prehistory so let's talk about it so the first thing you'll probably notice about scarabray if you went there was that the homes were incredibly dark windows weren't invented yet and most of prehistoric life and actually most of ancient life in general was done outside if the weather allowed for it I mean, you can take the Dark Ages, which we're going to be talking about soon. 
We often imagine monks during the Dark Ages sitting in large rooms lit by candles working on illuminated manuscripts, right? Well, in actual fact, they're much more likely to be sitting under a tree, maybe with their pet cat, and working on them there. And actually, one of my favorite little poems in an illuminated manuscript was written by a monk about his pet cat while he was sat there under a tree. So anyway, these ancient Britons were probably spending much of their lives outside. And there weren't any windows. So if you had a large opening to let light in, well, it wasn't really necessary. Not for the way they were living their lives. And it also was counterproductive since it would also let in the elements. And actually, the homes themselves were designed and laid out specifically to avoid unnecessary drafts. So why would you want to just go and open up a big hole in the wall and let all that cold air in? So these people worked and lived mostly outside. And many of them made hand-formed pottery. And actually, their homes were located pretty close to a midden, which is basically a garbage heap. And they probably had absolutely no issue with that. They probably didn't even notice the smell because they've been living with it their whole lives. I mean, now we've got a pretty sensitive sense of smell, but back then, they, they probably were just like, eh, that's just the way it smells. So they had these stone homes, and when you go inside the stone homes, the primary source of illumination would have been the fire that was burning on the hearth. They were probably burning driftwood or dung, or some even think that they might have been burning uh, dried out seaweed. So being indoors, it would have been warm, dimly lit, and probably rather smoky. And as you might imagine, these homes were single-room homes, so the single fire takes care of the light and the heat for the entire home. Now opposite the entrance, we find a large shelved dresser, which might have held utensils or clothing or cookware. It basically kind of looks like a bookshelf, and that's my best descriptor for you. Now they would need cookware and the like since they kept sheep and cattle in addition to their diet of seafood, so they're going to be cooking up a variety of foods. And keep in mind, again, that this is from 3180 BC. These people are not cave dwellers, despite how dim their little houses are. So we also find inside these homes stone beds, and there was a larger one that would be on the right side of the hearth, and then smaller ones on the left side. Some people think this was due to gender segregation, or maybe the larger bed was for the dominant couple in the household, and then the children slept on the smaller beds. It's really hard to say. There also appear to have been screens or canopies attached to some of the beds, which could have provided some amount of privacy to their lives. I mean, in general, everything in your life was going to be taking place in view of someone else, right? There weren't rooms or anything. So it makes you wonder, were these people bashful? We can't know for sure. I mean, chances are they were less bashful than we are. But the possibility of screens does suggest that there might have been some lines drawn with regard to decency. Now, Scarbray itself was probably home to around 50 people. And Orkney itself might have had a population of around 1,600 people, or maybe even as many as 3,200 people. And during around the same time as Scarabray, part of this population was taking the time to build, unsurprisingly, a massive tomb. Oh, Scotland. Anyway, that tomb is now referred to as the, the tomb, tomb of, of the, the Eagles. Eagles. But basically what we're talking about here is 76 different chambers in this tomb, and it was used for about 750 years. It was finally sealed up after this about 750 years. And it started around the same time that Scara Bray was occupied. Anyway, so this tomb has, of course, a lot of human bones. But interestingly, it also has the bones of about 15 sea eagles. Hence the name, the Tomb of the Eagles. 
Like most eagles, these sea eagles are big with a wingspan of about six feet. Now, the presence of these eagles in the tomb suggests that they had some sort of importance to the early people there. Some have pointed out the fact that those eagles would eat carrion and would even have eaten the flesh off of dead humans, and has suggested that maybe they're a symbol for transportation to the afterlife or a connection to the other world. And that actually might find support in the fact that the human bones do appear to be weathered, as if they were left out to the elements in order to remove the flesh from the bones before burying. If that's the case, maybe these ancient people saw a connection between the process of removing the flesh from the bones and then the presence of the birds in the tombs because that's who was eating the flesh. The presence of the birds might also have to do with totem belief systems, though. I mean, this is jumping forward massively in history, but by the time the Mediterranean cultures encountered Britannia, they noted that the early tribes up in the north took tribal names from animals. So you had the Epidii, the Carianae, the Logi, and these were the horse, sheep, and raven people, respectively. And of course, the name Orkney actually comes from the Roman name for the island, where it basically was called the Island of the Boar Tribe. Maybe there was an earlier people before the Boar Tribe that were tied in the same way to eagles. Who knows? I mean, these are all guesses, of course, but it's interesting to think about. But it's not just the eagles that are interesting about these tombs. You also have to look at the shape of the tombs. They're almost like homes for the bodies. Now, why take the time and resources to create a residence for the dead? Just like with the henges, these were enormous undertakings, so why do it? Did they believe that the dead actually utilized those rooms? Or maybe they feared the dead. Maybe these were some sort of a prison for the dead in order to keep them separate from the living. Who knows? But one nice thing about finding these tombs is that we're able to inspect the remains of our ancient ancestors, and based on the bones that we found, we can tell that they were generally shorter than modern man, they were heavily muscled, but they also dealt with arthritis from all the manual labor they had to do, and while they weren't the picture of health, they do seem to be a great deal healthier than the common people at the end of the Romano-British period. Anyway, what we're getting at here is that there's been a rise in agriculture in the north, and as a result, we're starting to see new religions propping up, as well as something of a preoccupation with death, is my guess, and actually hinges, which will later become important even in the south. So all in all, this is a pretty big period for Scotland. Also around this period, we're starting to see dogs that look much closer to what we think of as dogs and less like wolves. And actually, those dogs were often used by shepherds up in the north. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed listening. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us over at Facebook. That's facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can head over onto the forums. That's at our website. All you have to do is go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and then click on the forum button and join up. Thanks for listening. 